0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to On Purpose. Thank you so much for making this commitment to learning and listening about work, life, and love. And today's episode is going to be a real treat for each and every single one of us. Our guest today needs no introduction. He's an incredible thinker in this space. He has been inspiring us for decades, and he's the co-founder of the Chopra Center for Wellbeing and the Chopra Foundation, and has written over 86 books on health, wellness, medicine, and several of them are New York Times bestsellers. Today's guest is none other than Deepak Chopra. I know so many of you are so excited for this episode. I know so many of you have been looking forward to us sitting down together again. Deepak, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I was just sharing with you earlier, I had the opportunity and the fortune to meet you three years ago in New York. That's right. And I was interviewing you for two of your books at the time, Radical Beauty and You Are the Universe. And when I met Deepak, I, I want everyone who's watching and listening to know this, I'd heard so much about him. I'd read his books because my father used to read his books. So they'd be in my house since I was a young, young boy. And when I met him, the most fulfilling feeling I got to experience was that he wanted me to succeed. And he wanted me to succeed because I was trying to help others. And he was so encouraging and so supportive that I felt that genuine energy of love and encouragement and empowerment from him. So your blessings have been very important in my life, well, boy.
1: Your success is very important for everyone.
0: Yeah, well, thank it's you. It's not just about you. Absolutely, right? 100%. For me, it's not at all. And so we're very grateful to have you today. Thank you. And today I'm very excited because you interviewed me two days ago and you were sharing that you can't wait to talk about your past and your journey which I think will be really illuminating for my audience. And let's go all the way back. New Delhi, I believe, is where it all began.
1: uh, I was born uh, immediately before India's independence uh, from uh, British colonialism. So I'm frequently referred to as one of Midnight's children. You'd know that phrase coined by uh, Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it refers to all of us who were kind of at the cusp of the old era of colonialism and independent India. And uh, my father was an army doctor. He was actually in the war when I was born. So he wasn't in New Delhi. He was uh, a prisoner uh, in um, Imphal, which is now in the, what we call used to call Burma, Myanmar. Uh, it's under siege by the Japanese. So he saw me months after I was born.
0: Wow. And what was that experience of growing up at that time and on that cusp like? Like take us back to what that experience was like. And
1: Well, you grow up uh, and uh, awareness comes very gradually. So my first memory actually, very significant memory, is when I was six years of age, my father was at that time in England, training to be a medical doctor and then a cardiologist. And I was living with my grandparents, uh, as was my younger brother, who later became the dean of medical education at Harvard Medical School. So we're all a family of doctors. And uh, I remember at the age of six years getting a telegram from England. In those days, the postman used to knock at the door. It took actually 48 hours to get a telegram from England, (laughs) two weeks to go by ship or boat and two days by airplane, Dakota planes. Anyway, the telegram was that my father had passed all his exams. He was a member of the Royal College of Physicians. My grandfather uh, used to be an old uh, army sergeant in the British Army. So he had a gun, he went to the ceiling of the apartment building, shot a few rounds into the air to celebrate, took us to the movies. I still remember the movie, *Alibaba Baba and the 40 Thieves. And then he took us to a carnival. And then in the middle of the night, he died. So I remember waking up to the wailing of women Uh, He was taken for cremation. And the next day, uh, he was brought back in a little bottle of ashes. And one of my uncles said, what is life? Uh, Here he was yesterday celebrating with the kids. And now he's a bunch of ashes in um, in that bottle. And I remember not only being scared, but also even at the age of six years having my first existential crisis, what's going on? Where is he now? So, you know, and that continued throughout my childhood uh, and into medical school and essentially shaped my life. Yeah. That's that one episode.
0: Yeah. What an in- unbelievable experience to experience so young. Yes. And thank you for sharing that. And, and I really feel that how... When were the moments where you started finding those answers to that existential questioning like when did you start becoming more awakened to the answers that you now share with the world
1: not till uh, a long time after that you know right. when i was uh, in high school all i wanted to do was be a phys- uh, to be a writer <laughs> my secret wish always was to write and oh, yeah. my secret wish always was to write fiction more than anything else. Now, I have written a lot of fiction too, but mostly historical fiction. And I, at the age of uh, 14, was reading a book called Lost Horizon. And uh, it was about uh, this mythical place called Shangri-La where people don't age and where they don't die. And uh, it was a very interesting book and I was inspired to write fiction on my own but my father as you know Indian fathers they want their kids to either go to medical school or engineering school (laughs) he wanted me to follow in his footsteps and so he knew that was not my interest and uh, when I was about 15 he gave me some books Somerset mom, uh, who was a physician writer. So th- these are amazing books of human bondage, The Razor's Edge, which talks about existential uh, issues. And so I was so inspired by these books that I told my dad, uh, I want to be a doctor. And then, you know, I had to do biology all over again to enter medical school. And the thing is that, you know, when you go to medical school, you're supposed to understand health, well-being, and all of that. But day one of medical school is anatomy, which means you're introduced to a corpse. So you're supposed to understand life by looking at a dead body. Mm. That's the model. It's been the model ever since um, Michelangelo's times and wow. still is. And so that kind of model stuck in my mind. The body is a physical machine and uh, consciousness is a byproduct that, you know, we are molecules that manufacture thoughts. And I live with that model throughout my medical school years. I told you yesterday at that time, because uh, we were introduced to the dissection table and, you know, there's a certain smell that comes from corpse and especially if it's been preserved with formalin so i couldn't get the smell out of my hands you know dissection so i started smoking cigarettes to get rid of the smell (laughs) and i was experimenting with all kinds of things then we had some students who had come from harvard our medical school was founded by amongst other foundations the rockefeller foundation so we had lots of visiting professors and um sometimes visiting students and these students from Harvard Medical School um, introduced me to LSD first time. This is before even the Beatles got involved. (laughs) And uh, so I had some interesting experiences during my medical school years with smoking, alcohol, LSD, (laughs) scotch, the whole works. And it didn't stop till much later after I actually came to the United States.
0: Well, wow. So we've had, this is so interesting because I was sharing the other day, yeah. my experimental phase. Yes. And what, what were you experimenting with? Was it just because it was new at that time? Was it because you felt a certain feeling? Like where was that experimentation in your mind and life coming from?
1: So we're talking about the mid sixties. Mm. A lot was going on. The Vietnam war was coming to an end. There was a lot of protest against the Vietnam war. Um, Uh, you won't even know this, but there was the riots in America uh, against the Vietnam War. Of course. There was a shooting at Kent State uh, University and uh, there was huge global uprising for peace. The feminist movement was just starting. Gloria Steinem was burning her bra in in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. Greenpeace was coming as young, uh, late teenagers and people who were just embarking on our life journey, we were very idealistic. We thought the world was uh, going to change. Mm -hmm. The best hit on Broadway was Oh Calcutta and Hair and uh, uh, LSD, rock and roll, music were in the air. Uh, The Beatles Mm -hmm. had just uh, published their album, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So, yeah, it was a time of idealism, uh, but also a time of experimentation and also the feeling that the world was changing. But it didn't. We actually regressed.
0: Caseta by Lutron offers smart lighting control brought to you by pioneers in smart home technology. Caseta's smart dimmers and switches replace the switch in your wall, making all of the lights that switch controls act smart. There's so many places in your home where a switch controls more than one bulb. Ceiling lights, chandeliers, and so many more. You can save money by replacing the switches instead of replacing all those bulbs. Smart bulbs give you the ability to control your lights with an app or voice assistant to gives you the best of both worlds. Smart lighting control and from an app or your voice and control at the switch that anyone can use. My favorite feature is the smart away feature which randomly turns lights on and off during the evening to look like you're, you're at home even when you're not. So get smart lighting the smart way with Caseta by Lutron Smart Switches. Learn more about Caseta at Lutron.com forward slash purpose. Again, that's Lutron.com forward slash purpose. Go be smart. Here's something I believe is true. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Now I've seen so many young and growing companies run into trouble over the last few years and a common theme has been the fact that they have several different systems which don't talk to each other. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory and so on. It's just a big inefficient mess that takes up too much time and resources. This platform will allow you to optimize processes, drive operational excellence, sell across more channels and much more. Now my team proudly uses NetSuite by Oracle. It's a number one cloud-based business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need in order to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or your phone. Simply put, you'll learn how to optimize processes, drive operational excellence, sell across more channels, and much more. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com forward slash j. That's netsuite.com forward slash j to download your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com forward slash j. Yeah, how have you felt about that? Because it's interesting that everyone who's listening and watching right now, the audience that's listening now, may feel that we're kind of going through that period again in the world where there's an uprising of conversations around, obviously the gender pay gap, women's rights. We have more of a conversation right now about equality and unit, unity. We have, again, the conversation around the planet and the environment. It's almost like those same themes in, in our generation are coming to the top. Do you think, you just said there that we've regressed. You don't think- I that
1: thought we regressed? were going to see a world transformation. We would seeing social justice, economic justice, Uh, conflict resolution, perhaps the absence of war, a sustainable environment, and a critical mass of consciousness that was moving in the direction of a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. But it did not happen. 20 years later, in the 80s, you had these, my own counterparts on Wall Street and all these corrupt scandals on wall street wall street and the idealism was totally shattered and then we started to regress until as you said recently now mm. the conversation is picking up but it's not enough to pick up this conversation you know we have to actually see why we failed in the past mm. and that is because idealism without action is useless you know they say that love without uh, action is irrelevant and action without love is meaningless. Mm. But when you have love in action and love for the greater good, then things can happen. And I'm hoping they'll happen now or we'll wait another 30 years long after I'm gone. We might not even survive with climate change and all that's happening right now.
0: Yeah, wow, so you really think, and I'm just digressing from your journey, I want to go back to it, but I think this is such a fascinating point that you've raised. That actually, the real missing link is acting on our idealistic views and, and getting involved. And
1: without uh, being an angry social activist, without right. being an angry peace activist, that's a contradiction in itself. Yes. You can't be an angry peace activist, you have to be a peaceful real being peace. in order to create peace. You have to have experienced love in order to create love. And then you bring into action. It starts with empathy, which is feeling what others are feeling. Compassion, which is the desire to alleviate suffering. And if you have that, then that is the basis of all love. Mm. But then love has to move into action as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. What a beautiful answer. And I really hope everyone who's listening and watching right now if there's any cause that you feel empathy towards, if there's ever a moment in your life you feel compassionate, start thinking about how you can experience that and then act with it. That's what we need.
1: Let love Lead. creep in. Yes. And let it become the healer and motivation for everything you do.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We need more of that. I I couldn't agree more. I really feel that way that we live in a world today also when something's happening, we're very good at changing our social media picture. Correct. We're very good at changing the color of our profile. And that's good because we're standing up for something. But to really change something is going to require require
1: activation. We're polishing our selfies instead of getting in touch with ourselves.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly. And it's it's just such a simple option to take that versus to do more. So no, I love that. Let's let's go back to your story because I I really want to get there. So when was it now that you're experimenting with LSD? You're you're smoking cigarettes. You're you're drinking scotch. You're having all of these experiences while being a medical student.
1: When is the point that you come to a spiritual awakening? So uh, the year nineteen seventy. I get a letter from a foundation in the United States that if I pass certain exams that were then given by the American Medical Association and another agency called the Foreign uh, Something, Executive Council for Foreign Medical Graduates, uh, that I could get a scholarship. Mm. Now, I had not even applied or thought for a scholarship, but I did the exams and uh, I passed. and. I showed up in New Jersey at a little hospital in Plainfield, New Jersey, a community hospital. I realized when I was here that actually this whole scholarship thing was an excuse to bring foreign doctors into the United States because all the American doctors were in Vietnam wow. and there was a big shortage of physicians. The prestigious posts went to university hospitals for American graduates and the foreign graduates were then relegated to community hospitals, which offered no education, but lots of work. So I ended up being in this small hospital in New Jersey and all my colleagues were also foreign doctors. They were from Egypt, from Korea, from uh, Italy, from uh, the islands and so on. And basically, we were cheap labor, 4 $5 an hour. But I got to actually experience what it was to be in uh, a very traumatic environment. So we had gunshot wounds. Um, the hospital had a reputation for being connected, quote unquote, to the mafia and all of that. So I worked hard that one year. And then I uh, got uh, uh, a position in an academic institution, Boston, associated with Harvard Medical School. And uh, what happened there was I first did my internal medicine, still smoking and drinking and partying as a intern and resident. And then as I was finishing my internship and residency, I became a quote unquote internist, I then took a specialty training in endocrinology, which is the study of hormones, and uh, then in neuroendocrinology, which is looking at brain chemistry. And I had some very interesting colleagues, but also my mentor at that time was uh, a person called Seymour Reichlin. He was world famous, he's now 94, and he still, if he finds a snake in his garden, he'll dissect the brain of the snake looking for neurochemicals. But uh, at that time, now we're well into the mid-70s, we were discovering in the brain these chemicals that now everybody knows about. They're Mm -hmm. called neuropeptides. So neuro because they're in the brain, peptides because they're protein-like molecules. And one of my colleagues at that time, Candice Pert, she was later the chief of brain chemistry at the NIH, she used the phrase molecules of emotion. And I'd never heard that word. And now everybody knows things like serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, uh, (coughs) opiates, but that was, we were just discovering molecules of emotion. emotion. And so that got me hooked to the so-called mind-body connection. And uh, at the same time I was, Besides the research, I was also seeing patients. And I was very perplexed as to why two patients who had the same illness could see the same doctor, get the same treatment, and have completely different outcomes. One could die, the other one could recover. So I started writing down the stories of my patients just to see if I could learn something from them. And I then started submitting these to medical journals, but nobody would accept them. So then what happened is... uh, And they wouldn't expect them because? Because uh, they're too anecdotal, there's not enough research. So then I thought maybe I'll publish them for the general public and the publishers wouldn't accept that either. It was too new age. So one day I saw um, an ad in the New York Times about this big it said, if you want to get your book published, we can do it for $5,000. It was a vanity press. And so I didn't know what that was about. I paid 5000 which is a lot of money for me. It's we used to get money. $202 salary a month. So I had to wow. borrow the money. I got 100 books, uh, very shabbily produced. I didn't know what to do with them. But now at this time, because of all my... You know, what I was learning, I'd given up alcohol and I'd given up every experiment. I was meditating and uh, one day I was giving a lecture uh, to the students at Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge and there was a young woman, a student there in Divinity School. She said, can you give me a bunch of those books that you're talking about? I had a hundred and she took 12 and she put them in the window of the Harvard uh, Coop, which is now Barnes and Noble in Cambridge. And uh, the book was picked up by some kid who gave it to his mother on Mother's Day. She happened to be a literary agent. She called me and she said, why do you not have a regular publisher? I said, I tried. And she said, uh, she said how much did you pay for this? I said, 5,000. She said, I'll get you 5,000 advance. Next thing I know, the book is a national bestseller. I'm getting calls from Jackie Onassis and from major publishers all over the country. And I didn't know my life transformed. So then I actually got in very deeply involved in mind-body medicine. I knew that my colleagues in uh, Boston were a little embarrassed about me because they didn't believe what I was doing. I went to California and... Uh, to give grand rounds at a hospital and somebody convinced me to come to California and they'd open a center for me. So that's when I went to California. In the meanwhile, I also had also met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And uh, you know, he was as popularly known those days as the guru of the Beatles mm-hmm. and uh, actually misunderstood by the world because he was so popular, it happens when you get mm-hmm. popular. But he was uh, a very profound being and he asked me uh, to study or get involved with first Ayurveda and then Vedanta and consciousness. So that was how it happened. I told him about the molecules of emotion and he said they're not real. (laughs) So that's when I really understood that mind-body medicine was a good start for integrative uh, health and well-being, but it wasn't what um, these great luminaries were talking about that as we said you're not your body you're not the mind you're not even in this world and somehow you're creating the experience of the body the mind and the world so that happened almost um, I was I would say 36 um, when I started to shift into the world of consciousness and trying to figure out ultimate reality. Uh, Before that, I was a mind-body integrative doctor and I still am. I keep my license in California and Massachusetts. We have a medical practice, but my interest right now is unveiling fundamental reality.
0: I love anything that helps me feel better and is made up of quality ingredients. That's why it's so easy for me to tell you about Four Sigmatic. They specialize in mushroom based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy and longevity and help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. They've got something for everyone, including mushroom coffee, elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha and superfood blends. These products help awaken your mind and support your well-being without any compromises. I enjoy that it's quick and easy, just tear the packet and mix with hot water. This makes it great for travel and also when I'm in a rush. My personal go-to is the coffee with lion's mane. Now, lion's mane mushrooms supposedly have been used by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation and focus is something we all need in today's digital age. It's half the caffeine and double the mental clarity. I was worried about the taste since it's mushrooms, but it tastes just like coffee. Personally, mushroom coffee is way easier on the digestive system and doesn't leave you feeling jittery, nor do you crash two hours later. I suggest you could try one cup of your regular coffee with theirs, just swap, and it won't be long till you convert. I have a special offer just for you right now. You can receive a 15% off your purchase from Four Sigmatic. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash purpose or use the discount code purpose at checkout. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com forward slash purpose. Finding a gift for a kid that they'll actually enjoy and more importantly, one that inspires them to learn and expand their creativity is difficult. Now that we're closing in on the holiday season, I'm happy to share KiwiCo with you today. KiwiCo crates are a fantastic way to get your kid's brain working on STEAM projects, science, technology, engineering, and math. The more exposure to these ideas and experience creating things, the more chances they'll build stuff later in life. Now KiwiCo projects inspire kids to be their best selves, scientists, and creators. They offer a monthly subscription which has delivered millions of hands-on projects. These fun and enriching projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering and learning. Their mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with tools and a foundation to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. I really appreciate that the crates are beautifully crafted and well thought out so there's a lot of detail that goes into everything. I enjoyed seeing my friend's kid be fully immersed in a fun learning experience that was also entertaining. While he built a farm, his father got curious and ended up helping as well. KiwiCo is a company I align with because we both enjoy teaching and adding an element of entertainment to increase the effectiveness of our lessons. This is the best subscription box for kids and one gift that keeps giving. This holiday, give the gift of hands-on learning for tomorrow's makers. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your children to be anything they want to be. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. Monthly options start at $16.95 per month, including shipping. Go to KiwiCo.com forward slash J to get your first month free. Every day counts when it comes to making a difference, so don't miss out on this opportunity. Again, go to kiwico.com forward slash J and get your first month free. That's kiwico.com forward slash J. What gave you that inclination at that time because it was so early on in all of these themes, beliefs, philosophies kind of coming to the West with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, et cetera. It was was such an early time for terms like consciousness and reality and illusion. Like those weren't themes that were spoken about in such a broad way as they are now. What gave you the conviction at that time that that's the direction you wanted to go in and that there was some reality there as opposed to everything you'd studied?
1: I, um, I spent a lot of time with people that Maharishi introduced me to. Mm-hmm. There were seers, there were um, Ayurvedic healers, there were philosophers, there were other adepts in the realm of Kashmir Shaivism, Vedanta mm. and the perennial wisdom traditions. So I immersed myself into that environment. Also got very familiar with the terminology, mm. you know, that they were using. And it made intellectual sense, but still didn't make experiential sense. Mm. So that's when I really got deeply involved in not only mantra meditation, but in the yoga sutras of Patanjali, especially the chapter on the siddhis. And then I also uh, um, got involved in various other uh, disciplines, tantra, Kashmir Shaivism, um, self-inquiry, self um, Self uh, uh, reflection, transcendence, but also got into the habit of being a witness of my mental space, my body, what's happening inside my body, mm. and also of perceptual experience. And you know, once you get um, so deeply experientially involved there's no going back it's like a new child who's been born can't return to the womb anymore yeah yeah
0: absolutely absolutely it's a bit
1: which was a period it was 10 15 years of that
0: that's incredible i love this by the way this is amazing for anyone who's listening or watching right now who hasn't heard deepak's full story before from him this is this is amazing and you also we were talking about this the other day you also end up spending some time as a monk too
1: yeah, that was actually recently. Oh uh, wow! It wasn't oh, okay. That long ago. Oh, I thought
0: it was okay. No,
1: I mean, being with Marishi was like being That's in a I monk mean. environment. Yes. But then uh, a few years ago, I thought to myself, I needed a break from um, break from being so much in the public, public yes. eye. I wanted to experience anonymity. So actually, I instead of going to an ashram in India. <clears throat> I went to um, uh, the north of uh, the forest in uh, Korea, in South Korea, at the border of um, um, North and South Korea. And I went into a Buddhist monastery Mm -hmm. and uh, spent some time as a monk. We shaved our head, uh, shaved our eyebrows, uh, put on robes, uh, went with a begging bowl, every morning through the streets uh, or the streets of the village nearby the monastery um i had a couple of uh, um apprentice monks with me um, there was of course the senior monk at the monastery and we kept silence uh, throughout the day but then and we had one meal and you know in in these buddhist countries there's a tradition that if a monk goes by the street you Offer food, it's considered uh, a benefit. Yes, yeah, you know, auspicious. It, and, auspicious yeah. and you get rewards, karmic rewards for feeding the monks. Yeah. So we used to end up uh, returning to the monastery with uh, so much food, you'd think we'd gone to Whole Foods or something. <laughs> and the monks would keep filling it up and there was one meal. And then in the night, they would chant all night mm. um, and uh, we would listen. So it was a good experience, anonymity, and also the freedom that comes from uh, not being uh, beholden to the world in a sense. Yes, yeah. it was a good experience.
0: Yeah, why was anonymity so? Why do you think anonymity is so important for all of us in our life to experience? Why is it such a fascinating experience?
1: Because uh, when you uh, go past your ego identity. Mm. there's a bigger identity that is uh, so huge it's incomprehensible it can't even be described and there's a freedom and a joy that comes from that and uh, I had had glimpses of that but Mm -hmm. this period of intense stillness and by the way since then I've kept a week of silence uh, every year sometimes I do more And uh, that week of silence, usually in September, I do every Mm. year, just to go back to the taste of timeless being instead of, you know, our ego identity, which we keep polishing every day now, especially these days with social media and books and promotions and you name it.
0: Mm. What's something that people can do daily to access that experience? Because like you said... Our days are just busy with work and family and commitments and events. What's something people can do daily that helps them access their true identity, their self, going beyond the ego and the mind and the body?
1: I think the basic of it is to still the mind as much as possible and just become a silent witness um, to that which is happening on the screen of your consciousness. Mm -hmm. So if you um, close your eyes and take a few deep breaths, and then, um, you know, I usually start with a little reflection, who am I? Who wants to know the answer? What is it that wants to know the answer to the question, who am I? Uh, What is my purpose? Uh, What do I want for me and the world? What am I grateful for? That's how I start. Mm. Then I go into a little bit of breathing and then mantra meditation. And then what I do is I witness uh, what's happening on the screen of my consciousness, just uh, becoming aware. And sooner or later you realize that what's happening on the screen of consciousness is not who you are. You're Mm. the one who's watching that. And then what's happening on the screen of your consciousness ultimately leads to deep insights about mind and body and the physical world, which actually doesn't really exist, but we can get into that when we talk about meta-human. But I think if people just ask these four questions every day mm-hmm. before they start the day, even without a prolonged meditation uh, process, who am I, what do I want, what's my purpose? What am I grateful for? Suddenly the windows to the bigger reality start to open. Absolutely. This is such a
0: beautiful point that Deepak's making right now for everyone listening and watching. It's just such a simple way of starting to transcend the noise and the clutter that we feel every morning when we wake up and the first thing we do is look at our phones. All you have to do is just switch that habit for
1: asking yourself these questions. And And you don't need to know the answers because you know there are no fixed answers. These answers keep changing. All you have to do is live the questions and then life keeps moving you into answers that you need at that moment in your life. Absolutely and it all happens spontaneously, synchronistically.
0: Such a great point because these answers are revealed and received. They're not they're not found. And they're
1: pertinent for that moment in your life. Not necessarily the answers
0: i love that i think that's such a good point because so often we put this pressure when we ask a question that we must find the answer now it's like the education system has drilled us to believing that you have the right or wrong answer within moments
1: what was that uh, poet who said uh, live the questions and life will move you to the answers when you need them because if you got them right now you may not be even prepared for them
0: wow yeah, that's a good point. I know life has done that to me a lot of times. That's it, yeah. yeah, when you ask questions, and you think you want the answer now, mm-hmm. but then when you actually receive it, you realize, yes, I wasn't prepared. That's right. Absolutely. Wow, what a profound, what a profound way of thinking about it. I love that. That's that's made a huge shift in my mind. Thank Not you. even to want to answer the questions now. No. Just ask them and let your day and let them go.
1: Yeah, come like in go. the form of insight, intuition, oh, awesome. inspiration, creative. Um, uh, creativity, but most importantly, they come in the form of uh, meaningful coincidences or what Carl Jung calls synchronicity or what religious people say, grace.
0: Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Meaningful coincidences. Absolutely. Yeah. How beautifully said. I love that. So this is, what I love about your journey, Deepak, is just that at every point, it seems that you've been a seeker for more. Like you've continually... Mm gone in the direction of more learning, more growth, Mm -hmm. never settling. How have you seen the medical industry shift? How have you seen other things around you shift with time? Because you've really gone all the way. Do you think that we are seeing shifts in the medical Yeah, we are
1: seeing shifts. When I started, I felt like a loner. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, But now integrated medicine is part of every institution, including academia. And uh, in the last 15, 20 years, our foundation has done a lot of research. So we've made it pretty mainstream right now. So to summarize very shortly, what Mm -hmm. has taken 30 years to learn, or more, 40 years to learn, is that only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. So let me explain this for those, yeah, for a lay audience so a genetic <clears throat> a genetic mutation is a is a mistake it's an error in the gene genes are stretches of dna that code for proteins so dna is, uh, stands for deoxyribonucleic acid and there are four of these uh, named after alphabets adenine guanine cytosine thymine a t c g So, A, T, C, G are the four letters of life. In English, we have 26 letters. And most languages, human languages, we have more than 20 letters. But the language of life, DNA, has only four letters A, T, C, G. And these spell out words that we call genes. And the body is a story spelled out by those genes. So when people say first there was the word, word was made into flesh, in a way it's very literal actually when you start to look at the biological mechanism. Now once in a while or more than once in a while, there are genetic mistakes. So you might think of them again, we're speaking metaphorically, uh, but a spelling mistake. So instead of the word being spelled correctly, maybe one of the letters A-T-C-G is missing, or it's in the wrong place, or it's upside down, or you have redundant two letters instead of one. That mistake, genetic variation, is called a mutation. Now only 5% of these genetic mutations that are associated with disease, cancer, heart disease, um, arthritis, strokes, um, you name it, autoimmune diseases, Alzheimer's, only 5% actually guarantee the disease, which means if you have one of those mutations, you're going to get the disease. Like Angelina Jolie had a gene called the Baraka gene, which predicts breast cancer, 100%. So she had a mastectomy to prevent the cancer. Rightly so. For those 5%, there are new technologies that are being developed right now. And CRISPR is one of them, which means you can cut and paste the gene the way you would in email. So you would take the defective gene, you'd read the barcode with the molecular scissors, you delete it, and then you'll insert the right gene. It's not happening right now, but it'll happen in the near future. But what people don't understand is that's 5% of illness. Wow. The rest, even the genetic mistakes that are associated with disease depends on how you live your life. And very wow. simple things like sleep, meditation and stress management, movement, yoga and pranayama. Now yoga and pranayam goes way beyond exercise because with yoga and pranayam, there's a particular nerve in the body called the vagus nerve, it's the 10th nerve. And the word vagus is a Latin word, but it's related to the English word vagabond. So this nerve comes from the midbrain. It influences your facial expressions. So you can now do micro expressions and see if a person is happy or not. It influences the um, eye movements. It influences the tone of your voice. Are you threatened? Are you stressed? Are you friendly? Are you happy? It influences your heart rate activity. Then it pierces the diaphragm and it influences the activity of every other branch of the vagus nerve that goes to all the organs in the body. So when I discovered this through yoga teachers and masters, I realized that the yoga asanas, you know, we say yoga asana and people usually translate that into as postures. Mm -hmm. But actually the word asana means seat, as you know, seat of awareness, seat Mm -hmm. of consciousness. So each yoga asana is a particular seat of consciousness that stimulates a particular nerve that is going Uh, to an organ in your body. And the only reason for that nerve is self-regulation or healing or homeostasis so when i discovered that i became fanatic about yoga <laughs> i haven't mi- missed yoga now for as long as i can remember That's not one amazing. day wow. okay not one day of yoga or meditation or um, or pranayam so yeah. it was a long time so when you put together you, you know yoga movement sleep stress management healthy relationships and emotions like love compassion joy equanimity uh, Food that doesn't kill your microbiome, which is the 2 million extra genes in our body, which are not human. So, you only have 25,000 human genes, but you have 2 million bacterial genes in your body. This is called the microbial microbiome. It is much, it's as important as the human genome. So, you can change the activity of your microbial genes just by changing your diet. So, if you go um, not even vegan, but if you go maximum diversity on plant-based foods and foods that are not contaminated with antibiotics or hormones or uh, insecticides, Um, you can change your genetic activity and the population of your genes in less than six weeks. And which means then you're reinventing your body because your body is spelled out by your genes. Mm. So this got me going strongly into how do we reinvent our bodies by resurrecting our souls and going past our minds. And that's what I'm obsessed with now.
0: Wow, I love that. I'm so glad you're obsessed with it because the fact that we're so responsible for our own well-being is huge in the sense of belief that there are ways in which we can rewrite that story. You can rewrite
1: the genetic structure of your body. You can't change the human genes, sure. by the way, because you got them from your parents, but you can change their activity. So right. here's one of our researchers. Um, we, put one, uh, we put people through a one week retreat where they not only learned mantra meditation, but they also practiced the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali from the chapter yes, on the yes. Siddhis, particularly transcending the senses. In one week, literally, and this is published now in major peer-reviewed journals, if people wanna check them out, go to choprafoundation.org and you'll see all the research. And the research was in collaboration with scientists from Harvard, from UCSF, from Duke, from Scripps, of course, Chopra Foundation, Mount Sinai in New York. And what did we find? We found that in one week of this practice of meditation and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, all the genes that are responsible for healing and self-regulation they went up some 17-fold over baseline. These are human genes. And the genes that cause disease or inflammation went down drastically. The enzyme, there's an enzyme in our body called telomerase. It influences the length of telomeres, which are like little buttons at the end of your chromosomes. The the level of the enzyme went up 40% in one week, which means people were reversing their biological age at a genetic level. Wow. Okay, now how far does this go? We don't know. And that was just one week. It's just one week. And you know, the people who are in samadhi for weeks at a time, those traditions are not that prevalent. You know, there's a technique in Ayurveda called Kaya Kalpa, where you go into a retreat where it is totally dark, where you have no communication with the world, where you transcend, where you eat minimal um, maximum diversity of plant-based foods. And it, in six months, you come back a younger person biologically, physiologically. You know, I'm 72 now. I know, you're looking I'm, I'm, I yeah. You know, I, I'm not uh, focused on aging anymore. Yeah. Because I've, I've, I think that's a mistake.
0: For anyone who... Uh, follows Deepak on social media, Instagram or Facebook. If you don't already, I highly recommend it, but I've never seen you miss a day of yoga meditation. I, don't, I, don't. I see you every time and you inspire me so much because I just think like, if you're able at your current body's age to be able to do the things you are with your body and how healthy you are and how healthy your body and mind are, I mean, we have no excuses. Like There's
1: biological age, which is the exact biomarkers. So mm-hmm. What's blood pressure, bone density, body temperature regulation, fat content, cholesterol, vision, hearing, skin thickness, wrinkles, hormones. That's biological age. Then there's Mm -hmm. chronological age, when you were born, what your birth certificate says. Then there's psychological age, how do you feel? And then there's spiritual age, which is timeless, which has no age whatsoever. So, you know, we have to make these distinctions and see which of these we're talking about.
0: 100%, 100%. when you said at the end there that you're not thinking about aging anymore, what did you mean by that when you
1: said that? It's now um, something I talk about uh, in my new book, Metahuman, yeah. that uh, what we call body, mind, and world, and aging, and birth, and death, are actually human constructs. They're not real. Now, uh, we can go into that t- to the extent that you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, should we dive into the book for a bit? We can, Yeah, yeah, let's do want. that. If
0: that's what you want to do, let's, yeah. yeah if yeah, you yeah. want, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'd love to. I've, I've got so many questions on the book that, that we'd put together for you. So I'm happy to do that. So in one of the things, this is what I was looking at. The, you start the book by prompting two questions, right? In moments where you feel very happy, do you watch yourself being happy? And when you're angry, is, someone, is some part of you free of anger, right? Why did
1: you start with this? So questions? in all the spiritual traditions, um, not necessarily just the Eastern traditions, they speak of two worlds, the immanent and the transcendent. So the immanent is this world that we're in right now, this space-time causality in New York City, the hotel we're in. And then the transcendent world is the world of infinite being or consciousness. At all times, we're in both these worlds without knowing. But once you become aware, even slightly, that the awareness of a thought is not a thought, right? If you're able to observe a thought, then you, the observer, is not that thought, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, the observer of the emotion, or which is the awareness of an emotion, is not the emotion. Agreed. Or a perception, or a color. You know, right now we are perceiving through our five senses, and what we are perceiving is colors, forms, uh, shapes, sounds, sensations in our body, maybe emotions, and thoughts, and maybe images. Mm. That's the raw material of experience. That's all there is, okay? The words body, mind, and world are human constructs based on the interpretation of these raw sensations. Mm. So once you start to become a witness of experience, you realize that you are intrinsically free of the experience unless you identify with it mm-hmm. unless you say that's me yes it's not you it's an experience you're having right absolutely so once you bind yourself to the experience which we call the karmic web mm. of existence then you are in that circle of karma memory desire uh, you are constantly seeking validation you're afraid of people who criticize you, you're flattered by people who flatter you, you feel beneath someone or superior to someone. It's the melodrama of our daily existence. So when you can observe what's happening in the realm of experience, and instead of reacting to it, you observe the reaction to react, even for a second, Instead of reacting to the experience, you observe the reaction to react. You suddenly realize that your range of options or choices, right this moment, is actually infinite, mm. and you don't have to be a wow. bundle of conditioned reflexes and nerves that's constantly being triggered by people and circumstance into predictable outcomes. So, you become a mer- uh, you become you're at the mercy of every stranger on the street. So, yeah. I think it's very important to know. That yes, I'm having this experience, but I'm intrinsically free of this experience. So that's how the book starts.
0: Yeah. And I absolutely love that because it's an analogy I usually use to share that experience is like when we're in a car and someone hits the car, we say, Oh, someone hit me. Yes. But actually they didn't hit you, they hit the car. Yeah. And you're
1: identifying as the car as yourself. Yes. Now, how about if they hit your body, you know, and and your body perishes, right? Yes. Yes. So that's the argument people have against the argument that uh, spiritual people have, Mm -hmm. which is you're not your body, you're not your mind. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you remember that famous uh, dialogue between Samuel Johnson and um and whoever that idealist was, and he said, you know, the world is a projection of consciousness. And I think it was Samuel Johnson who hit his leg on a piece of stone and said, I refute you thus, mm. uh, saying that, you know, you get hit by a bus, mm. you're gonna you're gonna break your sure. bones and you might die. Sure. So Uh, why do you say that the physical world is an illusion? Now, if you want, we can address that. Yeah, let's address that, yeah. Let's address that. So, you know, this is, of course, I take people through the book very slowly, Of course. but if you asked a regular person on the street, what is this? Mm -hmm. They'd say it's a microphone. Mm -hmm. If you ask them, what's this? You'd say, this is a watch. Mm -hmm. What's this? This is my hand. What's this? This is my body. Now, if you really start to look at this very carefully, before you call anything by its name, microphone, hand, body, um, watch, before you use that, those words, it's an experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the experience is actually not a physical experience. Color, form, and shape are not physical experiences. If I asked you, where in the physical world is the color red located? You would say, uh, nowhere. In fact, there's no color red in the physical world. What's coming to your eyes are electromagnetic vibrations which have no color. Mm. What's happening in your eyes, there's no color. And if I asked you to imagine a beautiful red sunset, you have a picture, in your consciousness, but there's no picture in your brain. Mm. There's no picture in your eyes. And actually, the sunset is not, if you're imagining it, it's not in the physical world. Mm. Now, what you don't realize is when you're looking at a real sunset, all you're experiencing is color. Mm. The rest is a story. Okay, that's a sunset. This is a body. Okay, color, shapes, textures... Sensations, smells, images, emotions, and thoughts have no location in the physical world. Mm. And yet, out of this raw material, we create the idea of a physical world. So in Sanskrit, that's called Jagat Mithya, the world Mm. appearance. Mm. On the screen of your consciousness… And your body is part of that world appearance because people, you know, they say, where are you? People say, I'm here, but there's no one inside there. Mm. Okay, because Mm. this is also an experience in consciousness. The mind is an experience in consciousness. Moreover, it's a shifting experience in consciousness. No, you know, a thought is ungraspable. It's ephemeral, it's evanescent. You can't catch it, okay? You can't catch a perception. I look here, I look there. These are two snapshots of perception and they're evanescent. Mm. I look at my body and by the time I look at it again, it's a different body because it's recycling so fast Mm. at the level of atoms and molecules and information and energy. So the fact that we call this a body, it's actually a changing experience of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts that is a modified form of your own self. And it's changing, it's ungraspable. Same thing with the mind, it's ungraspable. Same thing which we will call with the world, it's a changing experience of shifting what we call qualia in the the spiritual literature now, in the consciousness literature, there's this word qualia Mm -hmm. instead of quantum. Quantum is a unit of measurement, but a qualia is a unit of experience. So if I tell you, think of your wife right now and you see an image, That's a qualia. Mm. Now, feel the emotion connected with that. That's a qualia. Mm. Now, think of what you want to do with her this evening, go out for dinner or a movie. That's a qualia. So, qualia are units of experience. When we string them together, we create the construct of mind, body, and world. Mm. And once we create that construct, then we're stuck with constructs like birth and death and karma and memory and desire and all the things which make a very fascinating human experience, but it's not reality. Mm. It's, it, we are already in a virtual reality. Okay, so today with uh, VR and immersive augmented experiences and dreamscapes, it is becoming clear that the world that you and I are inhabiting right now is a collective human dreamscape and as body minds, we are fictional characters in that dreamscape. And it's an illusion that we can upgrade or we can downgrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can create heaven out of it or hell, but it's still not fundamental reality. And now with the new technologies, this is becoming very clear. Mm. Once you realize that the world is a construct, yes, the Construct has been evolving through mythology, through religion, through economics, through history, through society, through culture, but it's still a construct. Mm. And what these great seers, these great uh, rishis were able to do is they were able to deconstruct it. Once you deconstruct it, what are you left with? You know, when you left, you've heard that expression, neti, 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 I'm not the mind, I'm not the body, I'm not the intellect, I'm, I'm the observer. What are you left with? Once you deconstruct everything, what you're left with is formless, infinite, dynamic. Field of infinite possibilities, infinite creativity, infinite love, and the source of intention. So that's what yoga originally was and should be. Mm. Yoga means union, union with the self, which is also the self of the universe. And this is where, you know, I got totally seduced that human suffering, as the Vedanta says, comes from not knowing true reality, fundamental reality, confusing perceptual reality with fundamental reality, grasping and clinging, that which you cannot grasp or cling, the fear of impermanence, the construct of the ego, and the fear of death. These are all the same thing, not knowing what is real and what is a projection. And even the projection can be changed.
0: Absolutely! Wow, what a class in what a masterclass in 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 reality and illusion. How does then one function within the world, but then still understand? Because I think the challenge people have on a day to day basis, as you've probably heard for decades, is this: Well, if it if if what I'm experiencing is not complete reality, then where do I go from there? Like, what well, do I do? Do I get married? Movies. Do I fall in love? Yes. Do I not? So do I work? We
1: go to the movies, you know. I used to go to a lot of movies. I don't that much anymore because what we call everyday reality is a more interesting movie than most movies. Yeah. Don't have the imagination to capture the, what is happening in what we call everyday reality. So we're in it. We might as well enjoy it Mm -hmm. and upgrade it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the expression is to be in the world and not of, of it. this world yeah. okay or we are spiritual beings having a human experience or non-local beings having a local experience timeless but in time once you understand that and once you also get into the habit of self-reflection self-inquiry observing perceptual experiences without necessarily judging them so i'm right now having the experience of colors and forms and tastes and smells and sounds i don't necessarily have to qualify this experience and transcendence where you know you go to that place where there is no mantra and no thought and just deep stillness then the shift starts to occur that you're not identifying with your body mind or experiences of the world and yet you're enjoying them mm-hmm. or not enjoying them and now you want to do something to shift and since you're in the world you know about um, 25 years ago I wrote this book how to make that practical and I don't know how but uh, basically I came up with the idea of the seven spiritual laws of success Mm -hmm. the law of pure potentiality the law of giving and receiving karma intention desire um, least effort um, and detachment and dharma those seven principles guided me into a new idea of what success is. Uh, the progressive realization of worthy goals, the ability to love, to have compassion. But most importantly, to identify with your creative center instead of the projection that's coming from that center. Because most of the time, our experience of is coming from identifying with a projection that has been created by the conditioned or ego mind. Now the ego mind is not going to disappear uh, as long as you're in this body or actually you're not in the body, the body's in you, but whatever. So it's not going to disappear. But if you keep it in the background and you're aware of it Mm. and you ask yourself, what am I motivated by? And I have these little tricks in my mind pursue excellence ignore success and then everything happens synchronicity meaningful coincidences the state of grace effortless being spontaneous fulfillment of desire these are little things over the years that I've gleaned as my little catchphrases to remind myself yes of reality. that I must live a life that is based on love mm. and if it's not based on love at the highest level you know as the Vedantists say, love should radiate from you like light from a bonfire. Yeah, not focused on anyone and not denied to anyone. It's just the light of the sun. Yeah. If you start, and it takes time, you know. Remember, I'm of course, 72. it takes time. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, so absolutely. I, it took me. And and, and I think
0: that's the most beautiful thing is that what we're having to do on a daily practical level is just continuing to realign. That's and it. just being able to recognize that all your exper you are not your experiences. That's you are not the result of an external result. You know, you don't have to take on that burden. Just like layers of clothes, we've just been wearing all these emotions like layers of clothes. You can just take them off and let go. They're not That's you.
1: Very beautiful to say.
0: Yeah,
1: but you see, this is also very interesting because awareness is never. As free and creative when it's not tethered to an experience. Correct. Whether the experience is that which we call the body, Correct. that which we call the world, or that which we call the mind. Mm. When awareness is untethered, which we call pure awareness, it's infinite, mm. formless but infinite. You know, Tagore had a beautiful poem. He said, In this playhouse of infinite forms, I caught sight of the formless, and so my life was blessed. The formless is the real you and it's infinite. The form is a phenomenon and as the phenomenon, it's you as that phenomenon. So when you see yourself in an object, we call that beauty. When you see yourself in another person, we call that love because ultimately there is only the self as both the subject and the object of experience. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely, absolutely incredible, Deepak. Every time I sit down with you, I always get another revelation and and another thing to focus on. Genuinely, I'm not just saying that. I can just sit and listen to you because, yeah, I'm just trying to piece things together. And I really hope that when the book comes out, we can sit down again. I'd love to. and go deeply into. Well, just Well, when the, the book. book comes
1: out, maybe we go into the steps to That's awakening. That's what I think. So I think that would be amazing. How when about the book we comes go out. into um... Living the awakened life.
0: Absolutely. I'd love that. I love that. Let's do that. When, yeah, because today I October. feel like we've really been able to capture your story right. and your background yeah. and your journey. And when the book comes out in October, I believe,
1: Living the Awakened th- that's
0: Life, that's when we'll go into that world. So, yes. Deepak, we end every interview with a final five. This is a rapid fire, quick fire round. Uh, answers have to be one word or one sentence. So, the first question is What's your favorite principle in a book you've written? What's one of the number one principles or? How can I serve? How can I serve? Beautiful. Thank you. Wonderful answers. Second question. If you could get everyone in the world to start doing one thing every day, what would it be? If you could toss the world and they could take on one practice, what would be that one practice? Ask
1: yourself, (laughs) who am I? What am I? And see what happens.
0: Okay. Awesome. Number three. If you could define the human experience in one word, what would it be? Sacred and profane. Okay. Amazing. Number four, what do you feel is your greatest accomplishment?
1: These days, I would like to say my grandkids.
0: Oh, beautiful. And question number five, what is one thing you're looking forward to accomplishing this year or learning this year?
1: Sharing my revelations with the world. Amazing.
0: Deepak, thank you so much for being a living example of everything thank you, you speak thank about. If you already don't follow Deepak on Instagram and Facebook and all the other platforms, Twitter, et cetera, please go and follow him. He is... Uh, a real example of everything he shared today, his practice of yoga, his practice of meditation, everything he speaks, it's just emanating from you all the time. Uh, Being with Deepak for a few moments, you you get to experience that too. So please, please, please go and follow him. His book, MetaHuman, is coming out in October. We will do another interview for that book because I believe there's so much to dive into. And today we've been able to uncover Deepak's incredible life I didn't know all of that. I'm sure all of you didn't as well. So please go ahead, grab the uh, Seven uh, Spiritual Laws of Success as well. It's a phenomenal book, one of my favorite ones. So I highly recommend that reading before MetaHuman when it comes out later this year. But Deepak, thank you again thank you. for this thank incredible, you. incredible, incredible opportunity. Uh, it was and a privilege. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you for being such a supporter of my work thank and you. such thank an you. encourager. Okay. It means the world. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much.
1: Thank you.